Good morning. Wow, was it worship amazing this morning? It was so good. Um, thank you to the worship team for leading us into God's presence this morning. It was so good. Um, I'm really excited to share today. Hugh asked me to share on faithfulness, uh, and I will eventually get to that, I promise. Uh, but faithfulness is a, it's a fruit of the Spirit, right? So it's something that we bear as we walk with Jesus, as we abide in him, and not something that we do. We, uh, we went away uh, this weekend, a few of us, to um, Amish country in Indiana, and I think half of us kind of wanted to be converted and be Amish. We loved the... <laughs> there was more like horse-drawn carriages than cars. It was pretty crazy. And while their lifestyle is amazing, and they're so committed, and they're so faithful to follow that against the grain of the world, there's a faithfulness that comes by man doing things a certain way that's, that's restrictive, that's not free. But there's a faithfulness that comes from our unity with Jesus that's free, and that's so completely different than any kind of faithfulness we can, we can try to make up. Um, so I'm going to start out uh, just by reading in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 31. You can turn if you want, but you don't have to. I'm going to read it. You can just close your eyes and listen, or op- keep your eyes open and listen. Um, it's the Beatitudes. Um, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs of you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Um, the content of this verse is so amazing, just the, the upside-down kingdom that Jesus brought when he came to earth. But I want to tell you what he's not saying in this verse. Jesus isn't saying that if you're well provided for and happy on this earth, that you lose some kind of eternal reward. And he's not saying that being poor is your guarantee of great rewards in heaven either. Jesus I know a lot of people who have a ton of money who love Jesus with all their hearts, and people who are poor who have continually rejected Jesus, even, even though they're desperate. Jesus isn't talking about natural things. He's communicating a spiritual truth, that there's an exchange that happens when we're born again, an exchange of our lives on this earth that was destined for death to the life that Jesus came to give us. From the first Adam, we inherited a perishable life, But from the second Adam, we inherited an imperishable one. But we can't possess both. God's Spirit won't allow it. And I've told you how much I love the Amplified Version of the Bible, right? And in the Amplified Version, the word repent means to change your old way of thinking and to turn from your sinful ways and live changed lives. Jesus came and he taught about his heavenly kingdom and told us that we have to change the way that we think 
about life. We need to be transformed in our minds and see things from heaven's perspective. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, talks about the kingdom of heaven. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and covered up, and in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding a pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. The truth that Jesus wanted us to grasp is that we can't hold on to and continue to pursue our lives on this earth apart from him and his lordship, or else we'll never really gain the kingdom of heaven. We have to trade. We have to make that exchange. It's the idea when Jesus finds us covered in the dirt and dust and stains of this world, he comes to give us new garments. We have to give him our old ones in exchange for what he died for us to have. Jesus has adopted us as sons and daughters, but we have to leave the orphanage and allow him to take us into his kingdom and family and receive all the blessings of belonging to him. And it, it doesn't matter how perfect you were in this life before you came to Jesus or how bad you were, we all have to go through that process of exchange and that process of surrender. We have to lay down our lives to receive his life in us. And even Paul, who was, who was perfect in a religious sense before he met Jesus on that road, he had, he had to be transformed. He had to be changed in order to do what God had purposed for his life. The problem that is that it's harder for us who have more and have enjoyable lives here to surrender those things to Jesus. It takes a lot of trust that Jesus has his best in his heart for us and that what he asks us to surrender is for our good. And God is so patient and gracious. And for most of us, this is a process of one by one surrendering every area of our life to God and allowing him to remove it, purify it, or replace it as he leads us. God graciously highlights one area at a time. It could be how much time, it could be simple, like how much time you're spending on social media or the things you're watching on television. And he just points his finger on it and you just feel convicted. You can't keep doing it the same way you were doing things. And And even though it's never easy to give up the things we enjoy, God gives us grace because eventually we get to a point in our relationship with him that we don't want anything that breaks our communion with him. We don't want to do anything that grieves the Holy Spirit. And sometimes God doesn't ask us to surrender things to him because they're bad, but just because they're taking up a wrong place in our heart. And and the more that we have in this life, the harder it is to surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus once said that it was difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's really hard to be stripped down when you have a lot to be stripped. But for the poor man, the joy of receiving eternal riches, it's good news. For the hurting, it's the hope of comfort. To the lonely, it's the promise of family. But to most of us, it's scary to surrender things like our finances. What if God asks you to give it all away and move to Africa and feed the orphans? Or... It's not just money that's hard to surrender, even just our reputations, our pride, being willing to look like a fool for Jesus. And I think this is the one I've struggled with the most for years, just the fear of man. It, I think it's been the biggest thing that's hindered my growth with God and just sharing his kingdom because I've been more concerned about what other people think of me than what God thinks of me. And only recently, after years of following him, do I feel like I've been hungrier to walk closer to him than to preserve my reputation in front of others. And it's his grace working in me now that finally in my life, I don't want to do anything to quench or diminish his presence in my life. And actually, I've been surprised, like as I've stepped out at work and in my neighborhood, how people didn't take me out to stone me or reject me. Like I've actually seen a hunger in them 
they're, they want to know God. They're curious. They all, they all want to know their maker. They all want to know their father, but they have things. They have baggage. And when you come and you share your faith, they, they come to you. They let, they let those things out of their hearts, and they're, they're hungry. They're seeking. And you might not be the one to bring them to Jesus in that moment, but you're the one to plant a seed that later we trust God will harvest. We pray God will harvest in their hearts. And and this dialogue that I've been to open up with the people that I work with has been just actually unbelievable just because I've been faithful to be obedient even when it was scary for me, even when it put my reputation and my pride on the line. And if we share Christ with those around us, you feel an even greater conviction to choose patience and grace and be diligent and detailed in our work, knowing that we're representing Jesus to the people around us. Now that they know I'm a Christian, I, I have to give that, extend that extra grace to them when they maybe don't deserve it. I have to be extra sure that I don't let my work fall at 4 a.m. when I'm really tired, you know, but I continue to know that I'm a representation of Jesus Christ while I'm at work or when I'm in my neighborhood. Or when my neighbor asks me to take her kids to school and it's an inconvenience, I know that I'm showing the love of Christ and it's powerful. It's working in their hearts even when I'm not saying anything to them. God can do more with a life completely surrendered than with one that is not fully surrendered but spends all their time serving the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, you, don't, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. God doesn't want our works. You can live your whole Christian life keeping God as an art at a comfortable arm's length. You can give them some of your money, you can tithe, you can give some offerings, you can give them some of your time, you can go to church, you can read your Bible and pray sometimes, you can volunteer and do good deeds, and these are all really wonderful things, but God doesn't want any of that, he wants your heart. He doesn't want your money, he doesn't want your time, he wants your surrender, he wants all of you. He doesn't want a piece of you, he wants all of you. The kingdom of heaven is glory, cloaked in grab, drab garments that is hidden from the self-seeking, the greedy, and the proud. There are only those who are hungering after God, who follow and surrender from a place of obedience, get to begin to see the veil removed and the glory shine through. Heaven's veiled. It's veiled. And only as you come to Jesus is the veil taken away. I remember forever when I was in kindergarten, this chapel service that they did, and they called up these two students and they showed them these two gifts. And one was this beautifully wrapped box and the other was this paper lunch sack. And they let these kids, you know, they were like second grader under pick. The one kid pick first which one he wanted to open. And the first child, of course, picked this beautiful box and the second one was stuck with a little lunch bag. And they used this visual to teach about the kingdom. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 2, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Jesus in the kingdom doesn't attract our flesh. It draws our spirits, but it often repels our flesh. That's because the world is under the influence of the evil one. Ephesians 2 verse 2 
And you he made alive when you were spiritually dead, separated from him because of your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked. You were following the ways of this world, influenced by this present age, in accordance with the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in the disobedient, the unbelieving, who fight against the purposes of God. And these unbelievers, we all, among these unbelievers, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, our behavior governed by the sinful self, indulging in the desires of human nature without the Holy Spirit and the impulses of the sinful mind. We were by nature under the sentence of God's wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being so very rich in mercy, because of his great and wonderful love with which he loved us, even when we were spiritually dead and separated from him because of our sins, he made us spiritually alive together with Christ. For by his grace, his undeserved favor and mercy, you have been saved. He raised us up together with him when we believed and seated us with him in the heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. And the cross stands between us and Jesus, the cross that's death to our flesh, but life to our spirits forevermore. I had to teach kids church last week. I had to switch around because uh, Diamond was, I went on this week, and Diamond swapped with me so I could teach, and I think it was like the hardest kids lesson you ever have to teach. It was on Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac. <laughs> I like, unless they have a lesson on Ananias and Sapphira or Elisha calling those female beer, bears to come and <laughs> attack the young men. I think it's like the, the hardest thing. As adults, we understand that God was testing Abraham's heart. But all, Ab- but all Abraham knew that was that God was asking him to sacrifice the one thing he waited his whole life for, his son. And sometimes I think we can minimize how hard this was for Abraham because we see the end. We see like, oh, no, but God was going to like come through this amazing promise. He wasn't going to make him do it. But Abraham just knew what God was asking him to give up at that moment, and he was obedient. He trusted him. And God... God, Abraham obeyed, and God saw his heart. God didn't make him sacrifice his son, and instead God shared with him his plan to send his own son to save all of humanity forever. And God wants to do the same thing in our hearts. He's jealous for our wholehearted love. When we say that he's our God, that means he's our one thing, the one that we live and breathe for. He He wants to be our one thing, so he will ask us to surrender and give him anything that stands in the way. We all come to him with idols, we do. Things that we desire more than him. Things that we trust in more than him. And we don't let those things come between us and him. And sometimes, like in the case of Abraham, we'll be allowed to still possess the thing after we've surrendered it, but sometimes he'll remove it if it's not for our best. But we have to take that step of laying it down on the altar, not knowing whether we'll receive it back or it'll it'll be taken away. But that's the trust part. And trusting that no no matter what happens, it's for our good. I was single when I was saved at age 17, and I was like totally on fire and passionate. And I was like, Jesus, I'll be like walking around in sheepskins and goatskins, <laughs> you know, like I'll do whatever. And I didn't know, you know, like if marriage was part of his plan for me, you know. And I was like, you know, probably it's not, you know, like probably it's the super spiritual ones who don't get married, and like that's what God, you know, I was just. I was obviously didn't understand. I was a little bit new to the faith. I didn't understand, but I wanted to give Jesus my all. And uh, I remember God, through a series of things, spoke to my heart, and he said that he was going to give me the unspoken request of my heart, which was, I wanted a husband. He knew I wanted it. And, uh, and eventually, when God brought Gavin and I together and, and just showed me that he was the one, um, 
it was, I had so much peace associated with it because it has been something that I had completely surrendered. And when he gave it back to me, there was nothing of my flesh attached to it. He had, he had purified that desire in my heart. And it was, it was just a God thing when he did bring him into my life. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I lost my spot. But we have to trust him no matter, what the, no matter what the outcome. We have to continually empty ourselves of the pursuits of this world in order to be filled by him. You can't fill a, f- a cup that's already full, right? We've got to empty ourselves out. That's the place of imperishable joy. That's joy that's not shaken by external circumstances. That's the place of absolute and total liberty and freedom where we're not controlled or constricted by the things of this world. And I'm definitely not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about entering into the kingdom, living with the kingdom inside of us where we walk on the earth. Because eternity is now. It doesn't start when we die. It starts when we're born again. And the minute we receive Christ, but we have to outwork our salvation. And it's a process of sanctification. The kingdom of God is not natural. It is not natural. Any part of it, it is supernatural. It is spiritual. It's not natural for us to give away our money to love the widows and the orphans. I'm sure we'd all rather have nicer things, you know what I mean, and be selfish. But God's, the, the, the kingdom of heaven demands that we live in a way that's all of us together, that we don't ignore the suffering of anyone around us. I'm just going to read a quote from this book, uh, Upside Down Kingdom. The values and norms of our society become so deeply ingrained in our minds that we find it difficult to imagine alternatives. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus presents the kingdom as a new order, breaking in upon and overturning old ways, old values, old assumptions. If it does anything, the kingdom of God shatters the assumptions which govern our lives. As kingdom citizens, we can't assume that things are right just because that's the way they are. The upside-down perspective focuses on the points of difference between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. The kings of this world are served by everyone in their kingdom. Jesus was the servant of all and gave his life for us. The first will be last. We must be like little children. The poor are blessed. The humble are lifted up and the meek inherit the earth. Where the world fights for power, Jesus tells us that our weakness, in our weakness he's strong in us and that he chooses the weak things of the world. In a world where we idolize knowledge and intellect, Jesus said to become like children. The world encourages and promotes selfish pursuit, but Jesus says we're part of a body, and we're just a member of a larger whole. We're part of something bigger than just us. As sons, of daughters, as sons and daughters of God and members of a heavenly kingdom, we need to represent our glorious Father to this fallen and broken world. So how do we do that? How do we represent Jesus? We have to radically love and serve the way he did. We have to own the values of our Father's kingdom. Jesus said that, what reward do you have when you invite all your friends to your Memorial Day party? Just kidding. That's my paraphrase. (laughs) But if you invite the lonely neighbor on your street or the homeless guy at the intersection near your house, your Father in heaven will reward you. You get a reward in heaven for that. We need to shift our perspective from an earthly to a heavenly for everyone. There's nothing more shocking Nothing shocking or wonderful when you love those who love you. But when you love the unlovely, it's powerful. It's supernatural. When you come to serve and not be served, it shakes up the norm. It makes people notice. People see it. I work at a hospital, and when the Cubs won the World Series, uh, Anthony Rizzo came, and he, he was visiting all the little cancer kids at Luria. I worked downtown. Um, and it was just like, it was so amazing, because he, he, he was using his influence to serve the broken, 
and it was just so powerful. And, and that's a worldly example, but like it's, it does something in people's hearts when they see something that's unexpected. And God wants us to carry that. He wants us to carry the values of his kingdom. I'm just going to talk a little bit also about just faith in the fight versus being passive in our Christian walk. There's a way of thinking, I think, today that's kind of pervaded Christianity in our generation, this idea that God is sovereign and therefore what will be will be. And I often fall prey to this, that like if God wants me to happen to have this job, he's going to open the door, you know, or uh, if God's given me a gift of service or a prophetic gift, it's just going to start flowing out of me, like naturally, you know, I'm just going to naturally want to do all these things, you know, but <laughs> the Bible says that we live in the midst of a battle. The Bible says that it is won. Jesus came and he gave the victory, but we still live and have to battle and fight for things. So until the end of the age, we're going to face opposition and resistance to the things that God's bringing us into. As a matter of fact, often the hardest opposition against the things he really has for your life. Because the enemy doesn't want to see God fulfill his purposes in your life. And if you look at all the stories of the Israelites coming into their inheritance in Canaan, the Lord gave them victory over the people inhabiting Canaan as, as he promised them. But with each battle, there was strategy and seeking God's instruction for the battle. And every time it was different, and they followed and were led and they fought and inherited the promised land as they were obedient. The promise was always there, but they had to seek him for his strategy. They couldn't just go in. They had to hear his heart, and they had to obey him. That's the hard part, though, the obeying and the following. And the first thing in this process of obedience is we have to believe God's promise and word is true, and that he's faithful to fulfill it. Because if we don't have that very basic sense of trust in him, we're not going to face our giants in our promised land. I've heard a lot of people talk about so many times that if you're able to accomplish the dream that's in your heart, then it's not the dream that God gave you. <laughs> it's too small. God wants us to trust for something that's so much bigger than we can accomplish on our own. When the Israelites traveled for 40 years in the desert, they're finally nearing their promised land. They've been fed by bread from heaven. They've had water to drink out of a rock. They've seen miracles. And they get to the promised land, and they're about to inherit their promise. But all they see are the giants in the, in the promised land. It's only Joshua and Caleb out of everyone who believe in God and aren't looking at the circumstances. It's kind of like a wah, wah. After all of that, they like can't inherit it because they can't believe. They can't lift up their eyes. Do you see God's purpose in this? Do you see how if the Israelites only just believe, they will see his provision, protection, and love. But if they refuse to take that risky step of faith, they won't see God clearly. They'll think he brought us into the desert to die here. And actually, that's, that's what happened to that generation. They got exactly what they thought. They didn't look to him. They didn't walk into what he had for them. When we're facing impossible circumstances, it's so that we can lean into God and put our trust in him and see his salvation outworked and know that it's of him. It builds our trust and our reliance on him. It cultivates the intimate relationship that he wants to have with us. How many times in the Old Testament did God choose to give the Israelites victory through divine intervention? He would strike fear in the hearts of, like the, that story with um, Jonathan with the Philistines. They started killing each other. They, they just kind of, he just struck fear in their hearts and they start attacking each other. Or with Gideon's army where he whittled them down to 300 men and it was impossible. They were vastly outnumbered and he gave them victory through that tiny army because he wants us to see that it's him and not us. He wants to build that faith in us. 
but we can't doubt. We have to look to him and not our circumstances. Your circumstances are always going to make you fearful. They're always going to make you doubt. That's why you have to look to Jesus. The story of Peter uh, in Matthew 14, 22 through 33, when Peter walks in the water, it says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down off the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When Peter kept his mind and his heart in the Lord, he was able to walk on the water. When he looked at his circumstances, he began to become fearful and sink. And Jesus asked him, why did you doubt? You know, God really convicted me of that just a few weekends ago. Gavin and I took a trip, and he just said, you know, like, there, there's something about keeping your faith up. Like, don't relent, you know? Like, we can start to doubt if it's God's will, or like, God, is this, is this? but he, he, you can't relent. You have to keep your faith up. Because when you let it down, you, you start to see, you know, you start to lose your ground. You have to keep your faith strong. You can't doubt him. It says in James 1, 7 through 8, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by wind. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The responsibility is on us not to be people of impossible faith, but to continually keep our eyes on Jesus and not on our circumstances. Remember the God you serve. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide for all of our needs. He reveals mysteries and secrets, and knowledge belongs to him. He has the answer to your question. He has the strategy for your problem. All of those things are in him, but you have to draw into him. When I was in college, I was sometimes frustrated by the time required to study and do homework, and it wasn't because I was lazy. It was because I, I really just wanted to spend more time with the Lord, and I just prayed about it. I was like, God, you know, just give me a strategy how to study. You know, I, I feel like I don't need to, you know, you can make me more efficient at this. And he totally did. He just gave me a strategy. He really did. And uh, it was amazing. I was studying for a fraction of the time, and my grades didn't, didn't waver a bit. I had kept my grade point average exactly where it was, but I had to trust him. I had to pray, and I had to trust that he was going to do it. Otherwise, I would revert back to my old ways when a test came or a paper came. But I had to trust, like, God, no, I, th I think you showed me what to study, and I think it's going to work. And I did it, and it was, he was faithful. And this is kind of a good segue into what I was really going to talk about today, which is being faithful in the small things. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean that we're, like, far from the end. We're, like, close to the end, <laughs> I promise. I promise. I'm pulling it in. Uh, his master, Matthew 25, 21, his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So I'm going to talk about being faithful and faith-filled in the small things in life. Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is done in doubt is sinful. God wants this trust in him to so penetrate every part of our being that everything we do is from faith. When we come to church early to teach kids ministry or to be on the worship team or to set up the hosting table, we're not doing it. I'm not doing it because you and Vanessa asked me to do it or out of obligation. I do it because I want to be a part of what God, God is building in this place. It's a kingdom-centered way of thinking. 
I'm not thinking about the possible inconvenience to my family or to myself of waking up early. I, I want to come and bring my contribution in order to bring more of his kingdom into this earth. And I see it as an awesome privilege. And it's small, and it doesn't seem super spiritual. But Matthew 10.42 says, Whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he's my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. If you give a cup of water, you have a reward in heaven. How much more if you give them coffee? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, God, God doesn't despise the smallest act done from a heart of faith and love. And often that's the way it starts with the small things, that even if you're the lowest on the totem pole at work, you're just making photocopies, but you are faithful. You are there on time. You are there every day. You do your job well, as if you're doing it to Jesus and not to these people. People will look to promote you. They will look to make you responsible for more because you're so trustworthy. And God often builds our faith walk in those little increments. When Gavin and I first moved to Chicago, neither of us had finished our college degree we had both done some Bible college and training, but we weren't in ministry. And I got this job working for minimum wage at a coffee shop. And uh, Gavin still was working on getting his authorization to work, so he couldn't work. So we were living off just my salary. And it was really, really tough for a long time. We couldn't afford to replace our socks. I mean, it was like that bad. Um, and I had, we had a, our insurance had needed to be renewed, and we were living in Michigan, and I put that we were living in Illinois now, and it triggered all of us, like, changing over our plates to Illinois and getting a city sticker, and it was going to cost us, like, $300 just to renew our insurance, and we didn't have it. And uh, it, it can, that, those kind of things can break you. When you feel like you have nothing, and then this comes out of nowhere, it can break you. But if you turn into Jesus, and you say, Jesus, you know this need, you see this, and we trust that you called us here, he, he can make a way where there's no way. And honestly, like three days before all of it was due, my sister sent us a check in the mail. She had no idea. We're close, but we're, you know, we didn't talk about those things for the exact amount we needed, $300. And we, we renewed our plates. Another time, we were supposed to go home for Christmas that year, and I was like telling Gavin, I don't want to go home for Christmas because people are going to buy us gifts, and we don't have money to buy other people gifts, and I just hate that. You know, I hate feeling, you know, like we have nothing to contribute. And we had this sweet little Puerto Rican grandma neighbor who didn't even speak English, and she brought us like $300 worth of Sears gift cards. Of all places, Sears. <laughs> it was... So everybody got a serious gift that year. <laughs> but it was like, God cared about that. Like, what touched me was God cared about that little thing. You know what I mean? That tiny little thing that, that was, you would think is insignificant to a big, huge God. But he cared about that, and he provided for us. And there was another time there was $500 in the offering basket for us at church. And it's just like every time it just, like, touched our hearts because he was making a way for us. And God has continued to walk on this path of, of trusting him with our finances. And I can't say, that we weren't even tithing for part of that time, but we began to tithe and trust him, and we could not afford to tithe. We could, like I said, we couldn't replace our socks. But we, we did it as an act of faith to say, God, everything is from you. You provide for all of our needs. And so we're doing this to express our faith, not because we're being religious. We're doing it to say we trust you. And he has come through every single time. And, and, and now, you know, like Gavin's job is, uh, is very unpredictable. They work on commissions, so we actually, you know, it's very unpredictable. So we still have to kind of keep that faith walk. And there's been times that have been tight. We didn't know if we could pay our mortgage 
and we've had to trust that he was going to come through up until like the last day. But he's always come through. We've never had to live off of credit cards or get into debt. He's always come through. And he's just built in us this reliance on him of like, no, God, you've done this before. You're going to do it again. And we trust him. But it took us years to get to that place of trust in him with those things. And you just have to continue to be faithful in the small things. And even with church things, like neither Gavin or I, neither of us want to be in front. I'm like a middle child, so is he. Like we like to be in behind the scenes, and I don't like talking in front of people. But like we're so hungry to, we're so hungry to see God move, and we're so hungry to see him do things that as he's grown us, he's brought us into more, and it's grown our relationship with him. And we're, 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 we're getting past the hindrances that used to stop us before, just being faithful in the small things. And I know that we're all in different places in our relationship with Jesus, and some of us are just trying to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Some of us are trying to know him, seeking to know him more. Some of us want to be impacting the world and be in ministry full-time. But no matter where we are, the principle is the same. You have to be faithful and faith-filled with what's in your hand right now. We're sons and daughters. We're born into an everlasting, eternal kingdom, a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. So if we've truly adopted the values of the kingdom, we're slowly unpacking our worldly baggage and trading it for kingdom riches. Then we understand the importance of faithfulness in every area of our lives. This life is for Jesus. If your coworkers or your boss are unjust or difficult, you still work as if it's unto the Lord and not for them. If you're the boss, you lead by example with grace like Jesus would. If you're serving at church, you do it for Jesus. You don't do it for Hugh and Vanessa or for anybody else. If you're doing things for people, you leave yourself open to frustration, expectation, just all the wrong things. You're doing it for Jesus. We do everything from a place of trust in God, and if we're doing it unto him, he sees that and he loves that. He rewards that. You can't despise what's in your hand. You have to be faithful in it, because all God is seeking is a surrendered heart that trusts in him in spite of the current circumstances, and he's so faithful to come through when, when we trust in him. It says in the Bible, even if we're faithless, he's faithful. He can't be anything else. So take your burdens off of your shoulders and give them to him and trust in him. And don't lose your trust when things get scary because they're going to get scary. <laughs> they're going to get scary at some time. But he's never going to fail you. 